Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. So Bliss is frozen while she's working on her mechanics. Okay, is that good? I can hear you great. Now I oh, now I can see you even. Hello. What did you do? You got them both working. I know. I'm a, I'm a miracle worker. That's so exciting for me because I'm so <laughs> not tech savvy. Uh, <laughs> but I would, I would really love for you to have headphones. So I'm not the only one that looks like a friggin' dork. <laughs> Liz, I have to tell you, you could never, ever, ever in the world look like a friggin' dork. So much for being cute for the camera. I look like so a, cute. Yeah. I look like a podcast nerd. I'm officially a podcast nerd, you guys. <laughs> yeah, you look much more official than me. I'm sitting in my RV. I'm sweating up the wazoo. It's been a whirlwind morning. Yeah, um, me too. So why don't we, first of all, let's say good morning and good afternoon and good evening and good middle of the night to everybody. <laughs> good and morning. It's Wednesday morning. We're back again. Today is Yom Kippur. So even Should though I say happy Yom Kippur, no, I don't think you say that. I think you say, yeah, uh, that sounds weird, right? Say something like, uh, no, may God shine his light upon you or, or mm. uh, have an easy fast, that sort of thing. Cause you're, you're not eating. Yeah. And you don't say happy holiday cause it's not, you know, it's a week ago for, for Rosh Hashanah, you would have said that, but not. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, Thanks. um, yeah, I'm probably one of the uh, three Jews here in Kanab, Utah, that is, celebra <laughs> <laughs> that is celebrating, <laughs> not celebrating, I'm observing Yom Kippur. Mm. Uh, I haven't mm -hmm. gone to services and I haven't rested. I actually went on a really rigorous hike this morning uh, because recording the podcast with you when I'm here is an hour later. So I've got the whole morning basically to do stuff and I'm up at the crack of dawn. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, so uh, I, I uh, very exciting news. Uh, I got official word this morning that the money is transferred and the documents have gone through and I'm now a homeowner in Utah. So that's pretty can, exciting. I can say congratulations for that. Now you can say it, okay? Before, awesome. You know, before it was my fingers were crossed until I was sure that it was going to get done. And now I, uh, uh, I'm a homeowner here. Uh, I'm going to transition slowly here. I, I don't plan to suddenly just pick up and leave uh, Los Angeles, but I really wanted to have a base in another state. Uh, we'll talk about maybe later in the podcast today, some of the other craziness that's going on uh, with governments and especially in the state of California. But I really don't want to start there. I want to start with a shout out to my friends in Bozeman, Montana, Amy and Derek, uh, for hosting me for the fifth or sixth time uh, for the rete annual reteach breach we have with uh, Go Midwife there. And we had 25 attendees, Bliss. That's amazing. It's growing. Yeah. That's What's great. That? It's growing. Yeah, well, that's growing too big, actually. Um, you know, I could speak to 200 people in an audience, but, but for the hands-on part, 25 is a lot because mm -hmm. you want everybody to get a number of reps to where they're, you know, they're tired of doing it. They don't want to do it anymore. And that's sort of what we ended up doing. It worked out okay. Because everybody pitches in and I, you know, and once I get one trainer up and going, somebody else is pushing, then I get the other one going, the 
I have one in lithotomy and one in uh, upright position. And um, but there, but everybody was it was great. It was great. Uh, you know, we went. You know, the first time I can remember, I had somebody who wasn't real happy with my attitude about certain things. But there's always going to be that. So we 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 look past that, and we think look at the good things and the things that we're teaching and and supporting it. And then we went out with everybody. We all had drinks the second night and I took everybody out for appetizers and a round of drinks. And that was a lot of fun. Wow. That's generous of you. And then uh, the RV resort I was staying in was closing for the season the next morning. So I had to leave. And I went down through Big Sky and I went to the soccer field in Big Sky and I sat and chatted with Morgan Miller and Bodie Miller uh, for about uh, 45 minutes to an hour. And just got to meet their youngest little daughter. Um, and there's one of their sons was playing soccer. So it brought back memories of when my kids. Yeah. Every, every, I guess it was Sunday, I guess. Maybe it was Saturday. I don't remember. Where we would go to the soccer field and spend the entire day at the soccer field. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was great. It was, they were, it was great to see them. And then I took off and went on down to Idaho. And I stayed in a place I'd never would have thought I'd ever stay in my whole life. It was a national monument called um, Craters of the Moon National Monument. I'd never heard of it, but I looked at it, you know, on the map and I said, yeah, that looks like an interesting place. And it's an old, old lava fields, you know, from like 8 million years ago, (laughs) but they're the (laughs) newest, I think, I think they're the newest ones in the United States or something like that, maybe 4 million years ago. Wow. And uh, pretty stark. I think I sent you some, you think you saw some pictures from there. We saw that mm-hmm. really weird tree. Remember the really weird tree we saw? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the saltiest fuck tree. Yeah. Um, I was had my water bottle with me and I took a picture. We'll post it on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. Then I went into Utah and I took two days to get down to Southern Utah where I've been staying now for three days. You'd be very proud of me. I've been in a town with a McDonald's for three days. I haven't stopped, even thought about going there once. So that's pretty Very cool. proud. Yep. Very proud. Well, and, you've been uh, busy. Yeah, I opened a bank account and I went to the post office and uh, later today I get my keys. I'm going to stay here for another couple of days and I got to head on to Fort Collins uh, for a conference there and then on to Texas after that. And then I'll come back, start to set up some stuff here and come back and forth. I'll be back in LA and late after Thanksgiving probably and be there for several weeks. So that's up to date with me. Other than the uh, Augustine Colbrook uh, interviewed me for her, um, I guess she has a podcast. Yeah. Not sure what it's called. Can't remember. Do you know what it's called? Midwifery Wisdom, maybe? Maybe. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that'll be coming up. And when, when, when she releases that, I'll let you know. And then today, uh, Birthful Podcast re-released a p- podcast that I had done a while ago about how to, not even how to pick an obstetrician, it's what's wrong with obstetricians. Uh, <laughs> so that's back out again. And I listened to it this morning and uh, I would not retract a single thing that I said. Matter of fact, I would add some more stuff to it. <laughs> How long ago did you record it? You know, I don't remember. Oh, okay. A couple uh, years? Uh, no, it was probably this past year, maybe. But you know okay. what, Bliss, it could have been any time because I've felt this way, obviously, for quite a while now. That's true. About That's my profession yeah. and the lack of my profession being professional. Yeah. So uh, I didn't have a very, you know, I was sitting there this morning thinking, Okay, I'm gonna have to tell people what I did this week. It was a really <laughs> eventful week. I rode my bike. I did a dance class. Um, I did drive out to uh, Loma Linda to do my uh, NRP on the very last day that I could 
renew my license. So talk about, you know, procrastinating, but it was, some of it was not my fault. Maybe you could tell people a little bit about a Zoom meeting that I missed because I was on the road in the middle of nowhere, I think Idaho, but you were on, I think with Marin and Nathan and a whole bunch of people. Were you on that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I was. That's for the, um, the indie birth sanctuary that they're wanting to build out in, yeah, out in Kentucky. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was great. They, you know, it was the board of directors meeting or, uh, advisors meeting and, um, you know, just re-inspired about the passion of that project in terms of welcoming babies in love. I mean, like, that's really what I walked away with. It's a, you know, it's a sacred place um, that that's what they desire to do. And that is definitely my heart speaks to my heart. You know, there were some conversations about, you know, not being licensed and all of that. It's um, they really are like, I want to say cutting edge because they're just not, not playing uh, with the rules, say it, you yeah, know, they're, it. yeah, they're just, I wanted to see how I wanted to say it. Um, yeah, they're just, just thinking outside of the box and really doing what their soul's passion is. And, and then the rest of it's going to fall into place. And I really respect people who are willing to do that. And, and obviously the heart of the project is very close to, to my heart. I don't know that I want to move out to Kentucky, but other than that, um, I, I'm very passionate about supporting and uplifting everything they're doing. And I know that you are probably going to practice there in some way if it opens, right? When yeah, it opens. no, I would go there and spend a month out of the year there. Sure. If they yeah, something going. that's what I thought too. I just wanted to the move, best months. I'll come my, for the best months. Yeah. I wanted to move my base <laughs> out of California. Listen, you know, th- th- it's, it's not really, I mean, it is bravery, but it's also a, a necessity when, when tyranny raises its ugly head, no matter where it is, we have an obligation as, as members of the human community to stand up and, and say no and fight back. And what's happening yeah. in, in medicine is tyranny. There's no other question about it. I mean, I could get ahead of myself here, but I'll save that for the end. But, but um, yeah, so, so what they're doing is absolutely, nothing could be more necessary. And people out there who are listening to this, please share this information about the the indie birth you can go to indie birth's website and find the um the video that we shot and and uh, some more information about it but it's really it has got to be the future because the the current system it has is, is not failing miserably it's failed miserably and yet it's the go-to for most people um still think of that as the at that the acog and the ama and all that stuff um, have your interest at heart. And if you don't, by the end of this podcast, if you don't think otherwise, um, then I, you know, I have to say there's something wrong with you. Um, if you still think that they have, they're looking out for your best interest, you're wrong. You're just wrong. You're not paying attention. Yeah. You're not paying attention. And I would debate anybody I, on that subject. Uh, I'm laughing a little bit, Stu, because I have my big mic on, right? Yeah. And, um, it's picking up everything. So, I can hear my dog laughing up water in the background. So if you guys can hear that on the recording, it's because I'm finally up to date with our technology. Well, you know, on last week's podcast, we talked about this uh, interview with this this pediatrician who talked about, you know, uh, I want to tell people what our topic is today because we'll get to that in a minute. But 
He, yeah. he brought up the fact that meconium means the baby's uh, suffered a hypoxic bent in labor. And, and that's what meconium always means. And that the number one cause of perinatal mortality in, the, in America is home birth. And, you know, mm -hmm. if that wasn't stupid last week, it's still stupid this week. And we're going to... The math so doesn't add up. We got a letter from Brittany and we got... An, and Bliss just thought it was a good idea. So today on the podcast, yeah. we're going to talk about poop. No, it's not poop. What are we talking Steel. about? We're talking about meconium, which is actually not poop. It's the substance that's in the baby's intestines while they're in utero that is released for their first, you know, to open up their bowels. But poop is is actually dirty and meconium's not. That's true. Um, yeah. So how, it's not how, really poop. However, yeah, there are, you know, there's some evidence that meconium may have some small amount of bacteria in it, but it's but we're not talking about that. I was just using the term poop to imply that something that comes out of the anal sphincter. I know, uh, but I'm, I'm, this is one of the words that I'm particular about. It's not, it's not the baby's first poop, really. It's meconium. It's different. That's right. And in breech yeah. babies, it's all over Very the normal. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, I have a couple letters that I'd like to go to that were, for, that I've been holding over for some weeks. So I'm going to go off screen for a second blister and hang on. And I got to find stuff. Again, All right, Stewie. I started a little bit late today with you because I got back late and I had to move my RV from spot seven to spot six <laughs> in the <laughs> RV park because uh, somebody had spot seven for the next two days and it was a much nicer spot than spot six. So I took it for two days and now I had to move. Um, okay, so this letter is from a woman named Marvie. And she writes, it's, this is about loss and, my, and myomectomies. And I just thought I'd, read it because I promised that I would read it and it's been weeks. Um, Dear Dr. Stu, I recently became aware of your podcast and have been listening it to during my commute to and from work. It has been extremely informative and I appreciate your inquisitive approach to patient care. I've never heard it be called that before, but that's good. Inquisitive? I hope to catch up. Inquisitive. I mm -hmm. hope to catch up and listen to them all by the time I transfer to my next duty station. Huh. As a service member, thank you for your service, by the way, and the daughter of a nurse and a police officer, I think you'd understand that I automatically respect and obey figures of authority. On April 27th, all that came to a stop when my son lost his heartbeat at 19 weeks of gestation. Mm -hmm. The result of three visits to the ER in 12 days, daily debilitating fevers of over 101 degrees, and a very dismissive OBGYN team. The only miracle that came out of my experience was my little Andrus being born in call. I remained in the hospital for two weeks, overcoming an infection that spread in my, to my bloodstream and finally transferred care to Johns Hopkins to undergo a laparoscopic myomectomy in July. April, May, June, July. So that's less than three months later, she underwent a laparoscopic myomectomy. Uh, Johns Hopkins team said that my next pregnancy would require a cesarean section at 37 weeks based on the myomectomy. The doctors recommend I wait three months before I try my next pregnancy. In the meantime, I figured I would reach out to you in hopes that you can shed some light on similar practitioners to you in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Uh, anybody, Bliss? No, not off the top of my head, no. <laughs> no me either. Unfortunately. Uh, yeah, David Hayes is in South Carolina, but he's around and he's busy almost the time. Uh, I know you're a unicorn in this community and don't expect you to do all the research for me. 
But if you can share a few pointers on where, on where to even look for common sense approach OBs and midwives in the area, I would be forever grateful. Thanks for sharing your time and reading this email. Sincerely, Marvy. And then I responded briefly. I said, Dear Marvy, so sad to hear of your loss. I do not know the birth community at all in your area. So checking with some local midwives may be the best way to see if there is a like-minded OB near you. I don't like having to tell people to be wary of anything the standard obstetrician tells them, but that is the case. Actually, you know, I said that, but yeah, I know I don't like having to say that, but I say it all the time that I have to tell people to be wary of what their OB says. I told her I would definitely get a copy of your operative report and get a second and possibly third opinion on the recommendation for a repeat cesarean at, or a cesarean at 37 weeks. I do have a consultation service if you wanted to my opinion on that. There is one, there is a one-time question thing you could use. Lastly, and here's what really sort of puzzled me, Bliss. Depending on exactly what they did, the time to wait until pregnancy is unclear. If they did a deep myomectomy, then three months doesn't seem long enough to heal. And if they're telling you three months, then the recommendation for a cesarean at 37 weeks seems odd to me. Does that make sense to you, what I just said? Yeah, but I, I have a couple clarifying questions. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so why the infection? Where did that come from? And is no, that I, connected at all to the myomectomy? No, because the myomectomy came totally three months separate. later and it wasn't, it wasn't connected to the myoma at all. Again, I'm not even sure that she needed to have a myomectomy because mm -hmm. I don't think myomectomies cause fetal demises at 19 weeks. So there's something right. odd that's going on here. And again, that's why a record review for her with a second opinion, an independent second opinion, would yeah. be very valuable because, you know, that happens. You, you, people do lose second trimester babies from sepsis and infection. It's not really clear why. Was her cervix incompetent? It, I, there's that word you hate, but, you know, mm -hmm. did she have a cervix that, that didn't hold the pregnancy in and opened up enough to allow bacteria in? Did she leak, did she leak her waters early? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. But yeah. I, I can pretty much tell you from my experience that it's very unlikely that a fibroid in the uterus would cause a fetus to die at 19 weeks and then a subsequent right. infection. Right, very odd. So the other thing is, um, why would we treat the myomectomy surgery any differently than we would a cesarean? So we, we talk about vaginal oh, birth after okay. cesarean being totally appropriate. So why would that be different for a myomectomy? If the myomectomy is in the fundal portion of the uterus and if it goes all the way into the endometrium or close to the endometrium, what we call a submucosal fibroid, um, then, then that's more like having a classical surgical mm -hmm. C-section and mm -hmm. the recommendation for repeat exists. However, because of the twin to twin, I mean, the, the twin to twin, the, <laughs> you can see where my mind goes, because of the interpregnancy interval mm -hmm. that they're only recommending three months, I can't believe that they're worried about uterine rupture because even in my world, Oh, less than six months is a risk factor mm -hmm. for uterine rupture if you get pregnant within six months, even of a low transverse uterine scar. So there's a there's a um, confusion there about what they're recommending to her. Mm -hmm. Either if she needed a C-section at 37 weeks, then she probably had a through and through myomectomy. And if she had a through, through and through myomectomy, she should wait longer than three months to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. So the, okay. that's why I'm saying to her, and, and the audience is, that's listening, if they want to, you know, have questions about it, sure, they can write in. But, but that's why she needs a second opinion here. Right. At least. Okay. At least one Got second it. opinion. Got it. Okay. Any other questions about that one? 
No, just, uh, yeah, thank you. Okay, and then I have one more that I have to read. It's from um, Melanie from South Africa. And, I, and I'm sort of only reading this because it's from South Africa. Uh, and I love getting, I love getting- <laughs> International mail. Yeah. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of, mm-hmm. we, we are a one world place right now with, with the way I could send a picture from South Africa to your phone and it would be there in a matter of a couple of seconds. Yeah. I just think that that's amazing. It so, is um, This is from Melanie. She says, we have really terrible stats here. If you have medical aid or give birth in a private hospital, then your chance of having a C-section is around 70%. And if you speak to the women here, it's like they have been brainwashed because they all say the same thing. How lucky they were to birth at the hospital because they needed an emergency C-section. It hurts mm-hmm. my head, she says. <laughs> my decision to have a home birth at age 40, oh, the horror, for my first child was viewed as reckless by most and brave by some. But fear only sells if you buy it. True. I love that sentence. That's kind of almost why I read the whole thing. Me too. Fear only sells when right. you, if you buy it. I had the courage to if go through with it. my birth mm-hmm. plan thanks to stumbling across your podcast. And guess what? The baby and I are both, the baby and I both survived. So that's what she says. Great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just great. I did, you know, it's just a simple thing and it warms my heart to uh, know that you and I and the podcast had an influence on somebody to make a decision and stand by it. Mm-hmm. And whether the outcome was exactly what she wanted or not, the triumphant moment for her is to make the decision and stick with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So do you, you don't have any, any uh, interesting messages you got this week? Or you just had a really quiet week. Did have a really quiet week. I think I was really focusing on getting my license uh, renewed, okay. which you know, has, has had me thinking about whether or not I'm going to do it again in two years. Yeah. So where will I be in two years? Do I really want to do this again in two years? So, but yeah, that was my, that was my agenda this week. So nothing, nothing new, boring uh, yeah. <laughs> here in Liz, Santa Barbara. So you're always cute and never boring. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> okay. Got a couple Instagram messages as well that I'd like to go through before we go on to some government crap. This is uh, from Lisa on Instagram. And she says, hi, I'm a licensed midwife in California. And I have a few other licenses. Anyhow, I recently had a client come into my care. And they are from Austria, Swiss country. And they're two different countries. So I'm not sure which one I think she means. I think she means Switzerland because she talks about it later. They are here on a visa and a new adventure in a winery. Anywho, They came here with their insurance from the Swiss country. Now here comes the kicker. My client sent in my license and NPI number, contract, and boom, the Swiss government is going to reimburse them for all our care. No questions asked. Awesome. Get get this. They will not pre-approve a possible hospital cost because, quote, American hospital systems overcharge, unquote. Very true. And will, quote, only negotiate if slash when services are rendered, unquote. Also, quote, hospital birth is deemed an emergency and will only be covered as such, unquote. Isn't that interesting from Switzerland? Love it. Love it. Well, while my American, it should be. Yeah, while my American clients with Blue Shield, Blue Cross, Aetna, et cetera, <laughs> wait for their minor reimbursement with pre-authorization, fucking deplorable. Bonus, the Swiss social medical system now recognizes me as an in-network provider 
And I could probably have all my American clients get Swiss insurance and get reimbursed <laughs> for everything. <laughs> what, what the fuck, America, she says. Yeah. I thought, listen, you would get a kick out of how effed up this conundrum is. So awful. Love the podcast. And we have many mutual friends. Hope one day to meet you both. Meanwhile, let's all catch breach and twin babies where their parents want them caught and train on. Amen. Amen. Without going to jail. How's that? <laughs> you know what, Bliss? Somebody's going to have to go to jail. Somebody's going to have to be the Nelson Mandela of birth and go to jail. <laughs> Do you jail. know that in, in, well, we've had midwives go to jail. So that's not a new thing. Um, yeah, but nobody, but, but nobody but, stood up, but nobody, stood, they didn't have the masses stand up behind them. I think now that there's people that are, are out there, the Marins, the Nathans, you know, the Augustine. I mean, there are people out there, the Mies, the, the Ricks and David. I mean, there are people out there that would come and speak up. Hermine, uh, Greg, we didn't even talk about the fact that we, you and I had a meeting with them this mm -hmm. week to talk a little bit more mm -hmm. to start on. NICU tyranny and uh, baby jail, uh, mm -hmm. advice prime uh, advice like reference for for families who have babies in jail. We'll get more on that in another podcast. Yeah, I'm excited. But there are people that. that will stand up now. I think not that many. We, you know, there was a joke when we were in school that I was going <laughs> to that I'd be the first one to go to jail. That was the joke. Um, so yeah, but I'd like to not like to just you know have a pleasant existence catching babies in a way that you know supports families to have autonomy and to be able to like do what feels right for them we'll see well if you're uh, in we jail, if you're in, jail in california if you're in jail mm -hmm. then i will speak out about the ills of the coronavirus vaccine and then I'll get arrested and I can come to jail with you. And I'll, and I'll tell people that I'm identifying as whatever you're identifying at at the time. So we can be, you're we can so jailbirds silly. together. <laughs> you know, it's not that loony. Had, that could happen. I know, but I, um, I've had enough challenges in my life. I think my desire would be for, for the laws to change and for us to be able to support people without having to go to jail. That's that's my desire. Yeah, I think that's a dream. I I, I think that the laws <laughs> changing is not going to be something that we're going to see uh, in the in in the in the near future. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to live that long and see birth return to the, to nature. Um, yeah, I just don't think that too. the people that run it are going to ever give it up. Uh, especially when they're indoctrinating the next generation who will then run it and never give it up and on and on it goes. So insane. Right. So insane. Okay. okay. One more uh, Instagram. This is about a breach. Um, got it this morning, actually, at 1.32 a.m. I didn't read it then, but that's when it came in. You're so much better at keeping track of all these messages. I, I read them and then, yeah, I don't, I don't keep track of them. I have to I write everything down. In my old, in my, when I was in my home, I would, print, I, I would print everything out and I, I would have all these things printed out instead of having to look yeah. them up. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name's Heather. I'm 32 and I'm currently 38 weeks pregnant with my first baby. My baby boy has decided to be breech and I have tried many other natural things such as chiropractic, moxibustion, inversion, inversion, excuse me, 
Um, all the doctors and midwives have mentioned how small I am, as well as my baby. I was told to have an ECV or a cesarean, and I'm supposed to have an ECV done this Thursday, which will be tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I am nervous, stressed out, messed, messed up about it. I don't like taking drugs of any kind. I don't like the hospital environment, and I'm worried this will hurt me or my baby more than help us. Should I get the ECV or do I just hope and pray he turns on his own? And just to be told, my only option is a cesarean when the time comes for him to be born into this world. I feel in my heart that everything would be okay if I could just have him as he wants to come out. We are both healthy and no, and no, no complications this whole time. And I want, just want for us to both be healthy and safe. Well, of course you do. What, what did you say, Bliss? I said agreed. I mean, I've told people before, if I had a breech baby, I wouldn't do all that stuff. I would just, you know, have to let my baby come the way that it intended. But it is hard when you don't have options and you're, you're trying to consider whether or not to have a cesarean, you know, um, we shouldn't be put in that position because it is stressful um, to do all of those things when really in your heart as the mama you've accepted, like my baby's just going to come the way my baby comes. So that, this is when I get really frustrated about the state of affairs, you know, yeah, the and woman skilled, shouldn't be forced to do any of that. Yes. And in skilled hands, she has a better chance of delivering vaginally than a woman with a head down baby who walks into any hospital in the country. <laughs> right. So, right. And you know, I always think about it a little bit differently than most people because I really do believe that, you know, even breech babies and twin babies are a variation of normal. Our babies have been coming out like that since the beginning. And, um, you know, most of the time we don't need anything. So the skilled hands is an additional insurance. Um, but, you know, we've been delivering our babies for a long time. Forever actually. Yeah. You're yeah. very, very, you're, you're very, very calming today. It's a, it's actually, if, if you were talking to me, I would feel very safe and secure right now. I, 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 well, you are talking <laughs> to me. And I do feel safe and secure. No, it's not the mic. <laughs> it's not the mic and it's not the, it's not the doofy headphones either. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So I just told her, you know, I just messaged her back. I haven't heard back from her yet. I messaged her back. Where do you live? By the way, again, I would love people when they message me. Uh-huh. Don't assume that I know where you live. <laughs> <laughs> the all knowing. Because the answer to your question varies to... depending on what part of the country you're in or what country you're in, for that matter. I so. still really think that we need to have a provider, um, practitioner, provider, um, directory, because we get asked this every day. Every day we get asked for recommendations for different things around the country or around the world. And, you know, there's no way that we're going to know that, but we might be able to keep some kind of directory. I really yeah, every, a lot of people have started one, mm -hmm. but then maintaining it becomes an issue and eventually they fall out of date. Like uh, Informed Pregnancy did that with Elliot and then uh, uh, the Facebook group, what was it called? The, the Robbins Facebook group. Uh, breach I group. I forgot what it's called. Uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. They did one, and then I thought Rixa and David were start a uh, breach without borders. I think borders they are. One now. If, I if think Rixa, they are for breach. Rixa does it. It'll get. It'll get done. It'll. Yeah, she'll procrastinate exactly. for a really long time, but it'll get done. <laughs> 
and meticulously so. Yes. No, no. They they just, she's been working really hard on her book that just came out. And um, so we met last week, we had a Zoom meeting about our twin paper and we're going to meet again. We we want to have the twin paper to the publisher. I think I might've mentioned this before on April 1st. So you did. right. We're going to get mm-hmm. that done. Great. Okay. Did you know this? In industrialized birth, instead of umbilical cord blood, baby's blood going to the baby, in many hospitals, a nurse extracts some vials of blood from the baby's cord within minutes after it's born. We used to do that all the time yes. at Cedars. Okay. Yeah. The cord is cut, the placenta is taken away and labeled as, quote, hazardous waste. The cord blood and the placenta become the property of the hospital once it's labeled as hazardous waste. Hospitals then have the opportunity to sell the woman's organs for profit. The cord blood is routinely stolen from babies while parents lovingly stare into the baby's eyes with no clue as to what's happening. I saw this at every hospital birth I ever wanted, every hospital birth until I started warning parents. Never let the hospital keep your placenta for observation. Many of my families have been told that their placenta was lost and never saw their organ again. The only way to ensure your placenta won't be stolen and sold for profit is to have the baby at home. If you birth in a hospital or birth center, bring a cooler. Yep. Yeah. I always thought they just threw them out. But now looking back at that, um, I'm almost certain that they didn't. I'm certain they sold them to whoever well, used them for research. They can sell them what? for profit. Oh, they put it in makeup too. Oh, that's not just research. Okay. Yeah. They they use it for things. How do they yeah. how do they use it in makeup? I, I heard that vaguely, but it doesn't make any sense to me. What do they do? Grind it up and why? Well, yeah, it's, or the, it's just yeah, protein. Well, it has you're putting me on the spot because I can't think of the words, but you know, <laughs> I I make I make salves out of um placentas for moms too, in, in addition to the capsules. And it's actually really um it's really good for the skin. I've had people who um, have eczema and all kinds of things have um, really good benefits. So it's been used in, in um, traditional Chinese medicine, but they, they say that it's worth its weight in gold and they use, they use it for things like that um, for topical purposes as well. There's a actual um, component to placentas that I can't think of the term right now um, that supports um, skin rejuvenation. I know it sounds odd, but it's true. Well, it's better than throwing them away, but they shouldn't, they shouldn't be doing it secretly <laughs> and they shouldn't be no. getting profit off of somebody else's organ without telling them that that's what they're doing and giving people informed consent. Imagine that. Well, now you're telling them. Speaking of informed consent, it's time to get some informed consent about some valuable sponsor for us. And that would be Element. So why don't you tell people about Element? That's L-M-N-T, Blister. Yeah. So Element is our lovely sponsor that we really um, appreciate. And they are a tasty electrolyte drink with um, all of the good stuff and none of the BS, just like us. They fit right in here. And um, you can, you know, they talk about using it for different kinds of diets like keto and stuff like that. But obviously, I mean, maybe the birth workers are, are doing that, but we don't want our mamas to be doing that. But we all need electrolytes. And the great thing about this is it has no sugar. So that's really, really a good fit for um, recommending it to your pregnant and breastfeeding moms. Um, But also as birth workers, something that you can put in your bag and make sure that if you have those really long births, you're 
taking care of yourself and doing great self-care, like you talk to your clients about, um, and going out and walking and hiking like we do. Um, it's a great way to refresh yourself without any of the junky stuff. Yeah. And it comes in multiple flavors. Uh, your favorite is mango chili. Mine is uh, raspberry salt, but they all has grapefruit salt, watermelon salt, citrus salt, orange salt, raw, unflavored lemon habanero and chocolate salt, which you still probably haven't figured out how to drink. Do it yet. No, I saw them do a recipe with it. So I got my mind into thinking like, well, that's what are all cool. the ways that you could use chocolate salt? So if you want to support, go to the website, mm-hmm. that's drink element, drink LMNT.com. Put in the code word birthday instincts. You get a free sample pack with anything you order. That's drink element.com free sample pack with everything you order. Support them because they support us. <laughs> Thanks element. Okay. Let's get to our topic. Let's do it. Okay. So our topic today is meconium. And I want to start by reading an email, which inspired us to get to this topic. Well, and you know, it's one of those big ones that people, you know, are concerned about. What if there's meconium? So I think it's a good, it's a good one that people could look up and share with their clients and uh, research for themselves too. Yeah. So here's the, here's what, here's what Brittany writes to us. And this was just about a week ago. So um, good morning, guys from here in Canada. I wanted to message in and see if you had off the top of your head an episode about the topic of meconium and the way birth changes when mech is present. Well, now we do. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We had this event this weekend, and I know mech is a hot topic in the birth world. And I'd love to hear Bliss and your take on it and the true emergency of it. I felt underprepared to offer any insight that I felt confident in. I'll give you a little story if you've got time for a read. Well, I guess we do. A lovely first time mom planning a home birth, water birth. When 40 weeks rolled around, induction was discussed and she was essentially put on a book for 41 plus week induction. I repeatedly reminded her that 41 weeks is likely where she will land and that this is okay and expected. Anywho, as someone with anxiety, she always had higher blood pressure readings and pulse readings. So at her 40th week check, her blood pressure came up high. She was suggested to head to labor and delivery to just to blood test for preeclampsia. All was well with her blood and my client did opt to go home. But now without being totally harassed about starting a Foley balloon that night because of her elevated blood pressure, even after she explained that higher blood pressure for her is something she's seen all through her life, they continued to badger her. It's undeniable at this stage, it's pregnancy-related high blood pressure. That's what they said. But being that she hadn't slept in nearly 24 hours, she knew the last thing she wanted to do was start an induction. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to tell you, this, this is a smart woman. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, we, 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 we quote what hospitals say to people. And I want to make sure that people understand that people write to us with these things, but these are not exceptions. These are how people are spoken to at the hospital far too often. It may not be the it may not be the majority of the time, but it should it really it should happen almost never. I mean, Bliss probably would say never, but uh, but it should happen almost. You should never be spoken to like like with that such certainty or such um, condescension. Right. Fast forward a few days, and what do you know? She's having lots of signs of early labor. Yay! 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 As if she would be the first ever person pregnant person. I don't understand what that means, but that's okay. The balls get rolling. The balls get rolling. Oh, good. Um, (laughs) And in the wee hours of Saturday morning, she noticed some staining on her pad. 
She goes in for a check to see if they can confirm its waters have ruptured and if there's mech. After some time, it's confirmed that yes, there's meconium. Now she no longer can birth baby at home, but is told she will need to go to the hospital for the afternoon and see how things progress. I guess in Canada, they must have a rule. It's not about the mm -hmm. whole picture. It's just if there's mech, then that's it for home birth. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. It was clear she was starting labor and that she would likely not need any induction or medication. I asked the client her thoughts on staying home, knowing the mech is present, but also knowing labor was happening and could always transfer in the event baby aspirated mech. Going to get into that in a minute. The midwife had presented that when in the hospital, there would be two-man teams sitting sidelines in case of aspiration. So that's why the hospital birth was the only option. Keep that in mind, please, when we talk about this, that the idea that you know, you've got a team sitting there ready in case the baby aspirates. Right. For some reason, this didn't sit well with me. And I wondered, what would be done in a home birth if a baby aspirated, say, amniotic fluid? How were they trained in that event? And could those same skills be applied to a baby who presented meconium and aspirated? Also, being that she wanted a water birth, my mind instantly thought it was rational to think it would even take the mech risk lower as babe would have been born into the water. But I understand another reason for being as hospital was for the constant fetal, I, you know, the English sometimes isn't right. I'm reading this as clearly as I can, was the hospital has const, constant fetal monitoring, which we all know is already a very problematic intervention on its own. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, guys, sorry to take up so much time. I'd love to hear on the podcast that there isn't already one of your thoughts. And does anything change when you guys see meconium? Is it really such a huge deal? Okay. So what do you think, Bliss? Well, um, the thing about meconium is it is also a normal occurrence most of the time, especially with a post-dates baby. And I know that you'll talk about this. It can mean that there was an event, but we don't always know if this was an event that just happened, a hypoxic event, as we say. So the baby um, maybe has a cord occlusion in some way. Um, and so they they don't breathe for a second and then they release their bowels. That's what, that's what the fear is. Correct. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did I say that right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the causes of, of releasing meconium as an hypoxic event. So when meconium is present from my perspective, and again, she does point to that this is kind of a hot topic, right? So there's, there's different ways of managing this. So for me, it's always based on informed consent. And it's something that we usually talk about prenatally to let them know, because people will want to know what are the reasons we might transport to the hospital. And meconium is one of those reasons. Um, so there are different um, viscosities or degrees of meconium. So if you have light staining, so it looks a little yellow or green, um, you know, that's not something that is like really super thick in viscosity. Like if it's more like pea soup is what we tell people. So if your water breaks and it's like pea soup, the likelihood that your baby might have more challenges breathing if they, if that is in their lungs and they're trying to push it out at those first breaths might be more difficult. Um, if it's light or speckled, um, maybe not so much. Um, so it's usually that we give them informed consent about, okay, well, we are seeing meconium present. If you're not messing with the bag, you haven't broken the bag, the likelihood is you're going to see meconium right about delivery. 
So you're going to have to be prepared for it anyways. It's not like you're going to transport as the baby's coming out unless you're actually having an issue. So the issues that we would be looking for would be breathing issues. So if you have a baby that's got great APGARs and is doing well, um, then you just treat that baby like any other baby. And the thing to know is that meconium aspiration is diagnosed from time to time uh, retroactively. So at, at the sanctuary, we had one loss in the nine years that we we were open and there was zero meconium uh, observed at all. Baby's heart rate was absolutely perfect the whole time. Um, baby came out and never took a breath. And, um, and later on when they, you know, I, I imagine that it was through autopsy, they said that this baby had suffered from meconium aspiration. And so there's no guarantees with any of it. It's what I'm trying to say. It's one of those rare occurrences that can happen. Meconium aspiration is the one, um, MAS, which is what we're like most concerned about, but looking at the, the most recent, I think it's the last two, um, NRP uh, seventh and the eighth edition, we no longer suction even at the hospital from meconium. So, because you can't really get deep into the lungs, you can get meconium that's in the mouth, um, but you can't lung. So the recommendation is that we don't even do that anymore. So I don't know that transporting to the hospital, unless you know that you've got a situation with really, really thick, heavy meconium sometime earlier in labor, that it would be necessarily prudent to do that. I would like to backtrack a little bit and just talk a little bit because okay. there's confusion about the word what meconium means. And I know that in, mm-hmm. I've used the example before of the woman I transferred who had a breech baby and I told, I gave an entire report and I used the word breech once in the report and the only word that the, um, the nurse who was taking report heard from my mouth was the word breech. And meconium is another similar word like that. Meconium equals fear to the, to, you know, it's sort of a, re, uh, a reflex reaction that when there's meconium, people are, are nervous. And especially in my earlier days of training, when we did suction babies on the head, we'd have the baby's head come out and we'd take a delete and we'd stick it in their nose and stick it in their other nose. And then we'd, well, nostril, not, they only have one nose, hopefully. <laughs> uh, but, um, and then down their throat, and we try to go all the way into their stomach, and we'd say, "Don't push. We got a suction. We got a suction." That Finally, was when you saw meconium. Yes, you know, even terminal squeeze, and you'd see meconium like dripping out of their nose, and so you'd want to suck mm-hmm. it up. But the being squeezed was the thing that was really important. So mm-hmm. there's a big difference between the word meconium and the confusion between that and meconium aspiration versus something called meconium aspiration syndrome. Right. So a lot of people confuse them. And the minute they see meconium, they're worried about meconium aspiration syndrome. And you could even see from Brittany's letter that she used the word aspiration, aspiration, aspiration. She used it like three or four times. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference. Aspirating something is not good. Uh, if you you know vomit and aspirate your vomit, that's, you can get a chemical pneumonitis, and that's really not a good thing to get. So the same thing goes on with meconium. You don't want to get meconium into the lungs, but most of the time, it's harmless. And it doesn't mean anything. And it doesn't mean the baby suffered an hypoxic event, right? It's kind of like the argument that, you know, all elephants are mammals, not all mammals are elephants. Almost all babies that suffer a hypoxic event will pass meconium, but all babies that pass meconium, only a fraction of them have suffered a hypoxic event. 
So when people say that it implies that the baby was hypoxic, that's incorrect. It's right. possible the baby was hypoxic. Now, the other question is, was the baby, did the baby suffer a hypoxic event weeks before? Or was it something that happened in labor? And sometimes you can't really know that. And you can have, and my definition of meconium aspiration syndrome is sort of different than, than other ones. I've got three different definitions I want to read for people and start with that. And then we'll, we'll go forward from there. Johns Hopkins defines meconium aspiration syndrome as meconium aspiration syndrome occurs when a newborn breathes a mixture of meconium and amniotic fluid into the lungs around the time of delivery. Okay. Now that is very vague. Yeah. Because there's a difference between a baby who needs a couple of, you know, a, a little bit of respiratory assistance for a, you know, for a couple of minutes versus a baby who has true meconium aspiration syndrome, who's hypoxic, may need ECMO, may need, um, you know, cooling blanket, may need all those other things that go on. So that's really vague because a lot of babies may breathe in a mixture of that sort of thing. And a lot of them don't have any problem with it whatsoever. So Johns Hopkins gets thrown in the round file, okay? Let's go to Cedars-Sinai has a definition. They have the same definition as Johns Hopkins, almost word for word, almost as if it was cut and pasted from something. But they yeah. admittedly state, good for them, that they don't understand why some babies pass MEC and, and, and others and, and develop that syndrome and others don't. And they don't, and it may be a, that passage of MEC may be a natural event or it could be the result of stress. And they don't, and they admittedly don't know. So that's, that's very, at least that's a statement from somebody who I like, as far as the confidence goes, of admitting you don't know something. Yeah. Right? So Cedars does not get to go in the, in the round file, in the wastebasket. Now, up to date, which is something that maybe some people follow. I used to, I used to be subscribed up to date. I, it sort of fell off the radar with me, but I was searching the internet. And by the way, I had to go to page two, page three, page four to find helpful things that weren't you know, sort of like what they wanted you to see. If you really want to find stuff, the way search engines work these days, you you can't just take the first two things that come up on the search engine, All right? Anyway, right. so the up-to-date yeah. says respiratory distress in newborns born through meconium-stained fluid whose symptoms cannot be otherwise explained. Hmm. So I kind of like mm -hmm. that one. Mm -hmm. I kind of like that one. I mean, if a baby has a other reason to have a to be a, have a low you know low oxygen cord prolapse, abruption, uh, maybe there's a intrauterine infection, and that baby's struggling to breathe and stuff like that, you can't label that meconium aspiration syndrome because you've got other causes to do that. So that's what they're saying. So again, I, I want to make emphasize that it's very gray, and that meconium does not mean stress, distress or bit your baby will end up in the NICU. Meconium is quite common. It's seen in about 10% of normal pregnancies. Normal pregnancies. Agreed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. And by the way, mm -hmm. less than 50% of those who have meconium will have any breathing issue at all. So we're talking now 5% of babies born, okay, that have, well, 10% have meconium. Half of those won't even have a problem. So we're down to 5%. Mm -hmm. And only less than 5% of those will develop meconium aspiration syndrome. Only 5% of the 50. Of the 5%. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I do that again? Yeah. Okay. There's, there's, <laughs> there's 100 babies, okay? Mm -hmm. 10 of mm -hmm. them have passage of meconium. Mm -hmm. 
five of them will have 50%. Five of them will have some breathing issue at, you know, after birth, mm -hmm. mild, but only one in 20 of those five. So that would be one quarter. Yeah. One quarter of a baby <laughs> will develop a meconium <laughs> aspiration syndrome. So I guess you need 400 babies to okay. get one baby with meconium aspiration syndrome. There you go. Okay. There you go. Because <laughs> we can't do quarter of a baby, still. <laughs> no. Okay. No. I want you to just specify because we do have um, just families listening to this as well. So when you say five of those babies will have breathing issues, what does a breathing issue look like? Oh, they may need a little um, like bliss kisses. They may need a little bit of percussion. They may need a little blow by O2. That's sort of thing. not the kind of breathing issues where they end up intubated and in a, you know, and transferred to the, the NICU or that sort of thing. So we're talking, right. it's a pretty rare event, even when meconium is passage. I just, I just hear people all the time equate meconium to the possibility of meconium aspiration syndrome. And even when Brittany's letter, they said that, well, they have two people standing by every time there's meconium. Yeah. And just to make sure it's overkill. I mean, again, it's the way the hospitals look at things. It can be, but that's where the informed consent comes in. Big form choice comes in. So if you end up delivering at the hospital, you know that they're going to a team there that is specifically looking for the highest potential risk of what could happen in the nation. And if for a family, they're more diverse or that they feel most comfortable with, then they know that that is available at the hospital. If the, the family feels like, okay, this is a really small percentage, we're more comfortable with delivering at home and watching the baby and going in if we need it, um, that should be an option as well. So um, I think that that's where the difference in how you manage it starts to come in, depending on who the provider yeah, it, is. It's always, it's always an informed consent issue. But I, wanna, I also want to emphasize that sort of my definition from reading and all my experience through all the years is sort of that your baby suffers some hypoxic event in utero. And because of that, it gasps and it intakes meconium into its lungs. But it may, and the meconium then may do damage, but it might have been the hypoxic event that did damage in the first place. And right. it's, it's, when, a, when a baby is born with meconium aspiration syndrome, um, obviously it needs respiratory support as fast as possible, but it's not something that's likely preventable. Right. Okay. Now, having mm -hmm. said that it's not likely preventable, you can't prevent meconium aspiration syndrome. You theoretically, there are things that you can do to lessen the likelihood of a baby passing meconium or that meconium is an issue for the baby. And you mentioned a couple of them earlier. One is that um, you talked about not letting people go post-dates because you said that the longer you go, the bit more the baby is likely to pass meconium. That's true. So one of the medical recommendations for that um, is to induce everyone by 41 weeks, which of course is not our model. But mm -hmm. um, again, you could give people information on that. Now, can you see meconium on an ultrasound? Yeah, you probably can, although it's, sometimes it's difficult to, to determine it from potentially from vernix. I've, I've mistakenly thought that I saw a lot of particulate matter on ultrasound 
and mm-hmm. thought that the baby had passed meconium many ta- many times, but it wasn't something that we altered our plan for because the baby was perfect anyway. Uh, the biophysical was 10 out of 10. Um, and then when they bre- when the bag of waters breaks during labor, it's clear fluid. Yeah. So it was just it was just particulate squamous cells and particulate matter and vernix floating in the in the fluid that looks gives the same sort of snowy density that you'd see with sometimes with meconium. But uh, growth restriction is another risk factor for passage of meconium. Okay. Yeah, and and those babies would be a higher risk. They'd be more compromised. They wouldn't. They wouldn't necessarily be as um, thriving, you know, when they were born. So that definitely, if I had a baby that was, I mean, they wouldn't be in my care anymore. But um, somebody who was IUGR um, and passed meconium, I would think that that baby should really be managed in the hospital for, for sure. Yeah, and I and I would say that also my experience tells me that there's a difference between a baby that's undergoing chronic stress versus a baby that undergoes an acute stressful event. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's much worse for the baby to undergo an acute stressful event because um, they're not ready for it. Whereas a baby that's chronically mildly hypoxic, I told the story before of, the, of a woman who, um, who came in and she was having seizures and her baby's heart rate was in the 80s and we couldn't do anything for two hours. And the baby was born with a pH of 6.86, but it was severely growth restricted and it had probably been struggling for weeks not months. And it just sort of got missed by that in the home birth community. It got missed. Happens. It's missed in the hospital too. Um, and that baby is, did, did great. And it should it had no business being alive with a pH of 6.86. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things that I'll always remember. I'll tell that story. I don't know that I've ever told that story on the podcast before. But uh, I was, a, I was, a, I was a, a young attending at the time and I was covering a birth center in Culver City. You'll remember the place. Um, Mm -hmm. substance abuse like cocaine can cause Mm -hmm. babies to release meconium. Mm -hmm. Um, and then things you can do for that would also be, you could give, if you have meconium in labor and the baby's heart rate's otherwise fine and it's fairly thick, people often have last decade or so have been doing something called amnio infusion. And you know what that is, it's where they put a little plastic catheter up inside the uterus and they instill water, uh, actually saline, it's physiologic salt water, into the uterus. So it has the same oncotic pressure and hydrostatic pressure as what the baby has. You don't want to put, you don't really want to put just water up there. You want to put something with electrolytes in it to help thin it out. And there are papers that support that. So I can't say that's an intervention. Obviously, we wouldn't do that at home. But no. that's, an intervention that, that's an intervention that we can do that... That people think that, you know, having a water birth, at least when the baby comes out, it's, it's diluted. And, you know, these are common sense things that may never have been researched, but they just sort of intuitively make sense to, to us. Right? Right. 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 Okay. So um, what, what I'm hearing, what I, what I heard you say, which I think is a really good point, and I, I kind of want to underline it, is that it, the, potentially the baby had the event way before labor. Yeah. And and had, you know, um, aspirated meconium in utero. Well, or suffered hypo- or suffered a hypoxic not- ischemic event. Yes, they had Both. brain damage, right, in utero. Yeah. That we assume maybe as the baby is coming through that it happened at delivery, but it's something that that can happen prior to any of that. So that's yeah. that's something to It's important also. There was a mm-hmm. study that came out of the Green Journal 
And again, that's ACOG's journal. And I don't remember when it was. I remember where I was living at the time because the journal was sitting on, on a shelf. And I still remember it. Uh, I was in the, when I was in Westlake. So it could have been, you know, eight, nine, 10 years, 11, 12 years ago. Um, that looked at the babies with cerebral palsy and it found that almost all of them had suffered an event prior to labor. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, the trial lawyers of America want to make, want to make it seem that, that it had to have occurred when somebody with a million dollar insurance policy was in charge. And so they, they've convinced a lot of people that babies are all perfect when they walk into the hospital and only the hospital can mess them up. And I'm not saying the hospital doesn't mess up some babies. It's, you know, that system does. That's why the NICU is sometimes filled with babies who came in inside their mothers just fine, but ended up needing some transient time in the NICU. But most babies who suffer a, a hypoxic ischemic event suffered it prior to even showing up in labor. And uh, people just need to understand that. They just do. Yeah. By the way, I forgot to say, I'm wearing my Boomi Seahot uh, t-shirt that Lindsay Milas got me from uh, Bali. Oh, she sent it to you? Yeah, she sent it to me in in Montana. Aww, I got it in Montana. So sweet. Yeah, she's so sweet. Um, okay, so how does this apply to our home birth listeners? And you know the rules for midwives. And I, I know I know they vary country by country, obviously, and state by state. But what you know, well, you're probably a little bit more alert on aware of the, of this stuff of what goes on as far as midwives ruling. How does it work for midwives, at least in in California? What's the rule? There's no actual rule about meconium. That's why I said it's, it, it's very, it's very much based on, um, on what your peers are doing and what you feel comfortable with. Well, that's fascinating that the medical community actually let that one go because you know, if you're, if you have a lady that's 36 weeks and six days, you have to transfer her in California. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're not going to, Mm -hmm. you're going to fudge, but you're not going to, but they're saying if you have like thick four plus meconium, you don't, there isn't policy to transfer. That's interesting. I'm glad there isn't. I'm glad they're leaving it up to the thing, but they should leave all these things up to these professionals. Now I feel like I have to look it up again, but I don't, I don't remember anything specifically stating that, but I'll have to look it up again. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know in some States it probably says that they have to transfer like the Canadian rules and in other States mm-hmm. uh, it may be up to the individual midwife. And how the baby's doing and again, assessing an individual patient by patient, you know, client by client, baby by baby uh, scenario. That's the way, that's the way it should be. Um, Right. And then with NRP, again, I want to reassure the people that listen that, you know, we don't have a NICU available, obviously, in the home birthing world, but we have the ability to um, fully resuscitate other than we don't intubate. Um, but we, you know, we're trained to take care of these sorts of things. So again, we can, we, we can posturally drain, we can suction, we can do those things. We, and we can, and again, if you take the NRP class, you learn how to put in that, what's that thing, that tube called? LMA. Yeah, LMA, right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And use that while you're getting, you know, the uh, EMTs come to take the baby back to the hospital. LMA so. is basically an alternate airway that we would place in. Um, it's a really simple, small device that you put in so that you yeah. can make sure that the breasts that you're giving are actually going where you want them to go. Right. Without having to intubate all the way into the trachea. Right. Right. That's not something we would do at home. No, that's not something we would do. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I hope that covered meconium. Again, I want to make it clear that the confusion exists between the word meconium 
and the rare case of meconium aspiration syndrome. And they're different. And the community should know that, that, that meconium is a normal thing that happens sometimes. About 10% of babies will pass meconium in utero, and, and more than half of those, they're perfectly, there's, there's no issue at all. So we're talking a very small percentage of babies that pass meconium that are going to have some sort of problem, but it's only really the rare, it's only that one quarter of a baby that's going to need uh, intervention, right? <laughs> so it's about yeah, one. And it's, you know, it's similar to like GBS, where, you know, it's a natural occurrence in our bodies, but some of the babies that pass through it can get really sick. And that's why antibiotics is given. So it's, it's a similar kind of perspective of something that could be very rare that, um, you know, if you, if you feel like it needs to be managed in the hospital, that's, that's where you would go if you had enough time to do that. The last thing I'll add is while I was doing my research, uh, for whatever reason in my search, delayed cord clamping came up. I'm not sure why that had anything to do with meconium. And I just found mm -hmm. this. It found the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends 30 to 60 seconds of delayed cord clamping. Yep. The, Royal, the Royal College of OBGYN recommends two minutes. And the, uh, uh, the ACNM, or the American College of Nurse Midwives, recommends two to five minutes. So my question is, why did anyone think it was necessary to have a time limit on it? Um, because they need to be efficient. So it's for efficiency, right? It's for moving yeah. on to the next task. Yeah. yeah, at least this amount of time for the benefit of the baby. And from our perspective, that cord should be flaccid. It should not be pumping anymore. And even in a hospital birth, you can uh, go ahead and touch that cord yourself. And if it's still pumping, you can say, I'm not, I'm not ready to cut the cord. And they'll just, you know, hopefully have to wait. Yeah, and, and um, I didn't find any really solid evidence that it causes polycythemia in a baby when you just let the cord pulsate on its own because the baby's hemoglobin hematocrit is the same everywhere throughout that whole system. There was a slight increase in, in mild jaundice in some babies who had delayed cord clamping. But again, uh, I could not quantify that. I could not quantify whether it was something that they required phototherapy for. But the benefits so outweigh any risks of giving the baby back its own blood and its own stem cells and all that other stuff, right? Yeah. So say what polycythemia is. That's when your hemoglobin, your blood is too thick. You have too many red cells. So a normal hemoglobin in a baby is probably around 14, 15, maybe even 16. In you and I, it's probably 12 to 15. In a smoker, it's higher. People that live in Denver, it's going to be higher. Your hemoglobin adjusts to your oxygenation status. Um, you know, polycythemia is when it gets up thicker, when the, the, the hematocrit or hemoglobin is 12, 13, 14, I mean, excuse me, uh, 16, 17, 18, 19. It just, and, and it's the sluggish. babies look ruddy. They look ruddy and it's, but it's sluggish. You could theoretically, if the blood's so thick, it might plug a capillary or something like that. Yeah. But again, we go back to nature, right? So if, if, if in nature, you don't come out with a timer and scissors to be able to time and figure out when it's the right time to cut the cord, nature would just allow it to happen until it was done happening. And why would, why would we put something in our system that would cause our capillaries to burst, our arteries to burst? It just doesn't make sense. Like there, there's a system 
for our bodies to be able to regulate that. So there's, there is abnormal jaundice that does happen. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but the normal ability to be able to take in all the blood that it needs, utilize it for what it, what it needs it for, and then let go of the rest. Right. Stu, in any situation, our body knows like you drink water, your body releases it. You have toxins, your body release in a body that has homeostasis. So the body knows that like, we're going to get these extra red blood cells. It's going to use it for what it needs it for, which maybe some of that is a mystery. We don't know why some babies need more than others. And then the body releases it you break it down and you excrete it in your meconium. Yeah. And if the baby has a really high hematocrit, the baby will retain more water to dilute it out. Right. Did you hear me? Yes, I heard you. Yes, okay. exactly. Yeah. We're breaking up a little bit. And I'm, I apologize. I want to end with a couple of quick things. Okay. Um, okay. One is I learned, I learned about bait and switch. <laughs> Just now? <laughs> well, it happened to me. Okay. You know what bait and switch means in our terminology is that someone tells you they're supportive of VBAC and then at the last minute they tell you they're not supportive of VBAC, right? Or whatever, yeah. So I applied for a, a, a mortgage with a lender and I gave them all my information about three, four weeks ago. Nothing changed. Four days before closing, they told me that, oh, well, I think we're going to list your property as a investment property and not a residential property because you don't really have any income yet from, you know, this thing. Well, you could have told me that a month, a month ago, and I could have looked for other lenders, but they told me four days before closing. Mm. So I would, so they jacked me up nine tenths of a point and charged me $6,000 for the privilege of bending over. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a, that's bait and switch. And I, if anybody wants to know what mortgage company it is, I'll be happy to tell you off the record. Okay. Um, So I wanted to finish, it would be, there's so much going on in the world right now. And I just, I, I, I know that every week we talk a little bit about this tyranny or that tyranny, but there's several things that are going on with the government that I, that I have to talk about right now. Maybe my last chance before I get arrested, you know, (laughs) so um, I'm kidding. I'm, but I'm not kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. kidding. I don't know if I'm kidding. Well, you know, I, I was listening to a conversation uh, between uh, something that was, somebody was talking about big pharma and the government and they called it a cartel. And they said they, they're using tech language, like, you know, for your next vaccine, you're going to update your vaccine status. And the terminology is such that when you think about it, what do you update? You update your phone, you update your mm-hmm. computer. Mm-hmm. Now they're talking about, updating your vaccine status. Listen, listen carefully to the language they're using. You know, you are just going to be a bot and they're going to tell you how to, what you need to do. And when they use terminology like that, they probably think it's clever or, or nuanced or whatever else, but it's not. It's actually frightening that you mm-hmm. update your vaccine status. That's going to be, that's the new one. All right. So I don't recognize my profession or my country anymore. Um, I got, I got, uh, you know, Assembly Bill 2098, California was signed by the governor the other day. And Physicians Informed Consent and other, other organizations are going to start probably looking for plaintiffs and file a lawsuit against it. It cannot stand. It's a violation of uh, the First Amendment. And, but they don't seem to care. They're openly violating the First Amendment with that. Um, I also heard, uh, I saw a video of a UN spokesperson 
openly admitting to collaborating with Google to alter searches on the coronavirus vaccine and coronavirus mm -hmm. to manipulate the searches so that only UN stuff that they want comes up on like page one or two. And in the comments that she wouldn't, as she was talking, she casually just throws out there that we own the science. Mm. And it's not out of context. She said that as a justification for getting Google to do what they, and why Google does it is because Google is just a tyrannical communist organization. But, but the idea that they own the science and that justifies them shutting down and, and, and the government and the UN and Google are all collaborating to do this. We have, you know, this, this is not the country I recognize. And then lastly, the AMA, the American Medical Association is, position, uh, is petitioning the United States Attorney General, Merrick Garland, to criminally prosecute journalists and influencers and others who disagree with the AMA on their policies. They've actually encouraged them. This has to do with the transgender surgeries on young kids. We don't even have to get to the topic. But you certainly, there are people who have the right to disagree with doing surgeries on young kids. Um, and the American Medical Association, instead of keeping neutral or shutting their mouth, is coming out and asking the attorney general to turn to criminally prosecute journalists who point out that a certain hospital is doing things that might not be kosher. This is just awful. It's just awful. Um, so... There's a there's a uh, comedian on Instagram. You may see him too. His name's J.P. Sears. He's a redheaded guy. You mm -hmm. may see him at times. It's funny. He's uh, he says that you know in the olden days the king would never take criticism from any of his cronies. They'd end up being isolated, uh, being sent to uh, yeah. They'd be killed or off with their heads, or they'd be sent mm -hmm. often to uh, faraway places or whatever else, and they'd be punished. The one person who could criticize criticize the king was the court jester. Mm -hmm. All right. The court jester, for whatever reason, could could mock the king and the king and the queen and everybody in the court would all laugh at it. They could get away with it. So J.P. Sears is like that court jester. He says some really smart things. And he said something. And I just want to end with this. He says, we have a choice. We can tell our kids what freedom was mm -hmm. or what mandates are. And I'll just leave it at that. All right. Good to Thanks see you. For that. You too. Safe travels. Next week, uh, Colorado, probably. All right. I love you. And I love listening to your brother's podcast. I listened to it again twice now. <laughs> oh, good. My brother's podcast. It was it was my brother on our podcast. Yes. You mean? Of yes. course. Yeah, of I've course heard I've good been. things already from people that it was released today. So thanks, Stu, for being you. Thanks for being you. And everybody, thanks for listening and uh, making us uh, growing. We're growing. And, yeah, and, uh, don't yeah. forget to put in those uh, reviews on your podcast app because that helps other people find us and uh, share the episodes with your friends and on Instagram and tag us. Um, and we love you. And we're so grateful to be walking this path by your side. Yep. Bye-bye. Okay, Bye-bye. See you guys. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 